y'all in here have a nickname? You have a nickname. You know, what, what, the, the, the better nicknames come from when you don't give it to yourself. You know, self-imposed nicknames, a lot of times you just discount those. Those, those don't count. You know, but typically when somebody gets a nickname, uh, it, 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 it tells you something about their, their history, their past, their family relationships, and different things. And I, I start to think about this morning just different nicknames that I grew up with, you know, when people have. And sometimes how the nickname uh, speaks directly to the reality of someone, and then sometimes nicknames speak to the opposite of the reality of someone. You know, like you'll know some people that have the name Tiny. But typically, when you meet somebody named Tiny, it's a big old dude, right? It's a big old dude. You know, uh, when, I, when I was there at UM, we had a, we had a, a guy that, that rolled in circles with a lot of friends and stuff. And I got to meet him because he rolled in circles with some of my family. And his name was Casper. But it was funny because it was used like we used Tiny. His name was Casper. So he was the opposite of Casper. And I was like, that's mean, but that's clever. Like, it's so clever, you know. Cool brother, cool brother. But it's like, like nicknames, like they tell you something about the person, you know. I remember some years ago when the XFL started and they came out and they, they, they were, it was groundbreaking because in football, you know, you get your last name on your back. The XFL came out and said, we're going to let you pick your name. And boy, it was almost like, it was like, what, what, like, I got carte blanche of what I can put on the back of my jersey? And the most famous one was what? He hate me. And I was like, that was his motivation. Everybody hates him, so he gonna put that chip on his shoulder. And he got a little time in the NFL, too, though, so it, was, it worked for him. But, you know, names uh, are used, and they, they begin, especially nicknames, they denote a special kind of identity. In this passage we're going to read today, we're going to pick up on Jacob's story. And we're going to pick up particularly where um, some things have been left off. We've been kind of left on a cliffhanger because going back a few chapters, when he was on the run for his life, leaving his home and everything he knew with nothing, going out to Haran to his uncle's house he didn't know what was in store the whole goal was he would return in a few days and hopefully his brother's anger would subside and his brother would no longer be contemplating to murder him for stealing the blessing and what he felt was tricking him out of his birthright Jacob's been with Laban for 20 years we talked about sometimes you know we think we know what God's plan is it may take a little longer than we anticipated He's been there 20 years, but God has blessed him richly. Even when he was being mistreated and manipulated and tricked by Laban, God blessed him. And now we're going to pick up where it's left off in that story in chapter 32. 32 verse 1, it says, Jacob went on his way and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the territory of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I have been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female slaves. 
I have sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau. He is coming to meet you, and he has 400 men with him. Now, just remember, when Jacob left, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. Now he's coming back. Dude got 400 men. So keep that frame of reference. That's a scary situation. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people with him into two camps along with the flocks and herds and camels. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, the remaining one can escape. Then Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and go to your family and I will cause you to prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over the Jordan with my staff and now I have become two camps. Please rescue me from my brother Esau for I am afraid of him. Otherwise, he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, too numerous to be counted. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He entrusted them to his slaves as separate herds and said to them, go on ahead of me and leave some distance between the herds. And he told the first one, when my brother Esau meets you and ask, who do you belong to? Who, where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Then tell him, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And look, he is behind us. He also told the second one, the third, and everyone who was walking behind the animals, say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You are also to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that is going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two slave women and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob, he said. It will be Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he answered, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, yet my life has been spared. The sun shone on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. That is why still today the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. Verse 1, chapter 33. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two slave women. He put the slaves in their first and their children first, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. 
He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times until he approached his brother. But Esau ran up to him, hugged him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. Then they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the women and children, he asked, who are these with you? He answered, the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the slaves and their children approached him and bowed down. Leah and her children also approached and bowed down. Then Joseph and Rachel approached and bowed down. So Esau said, what do you mean by this whole procession I met? To find favor with you, my Lord, he answered. I have enough, my brother, Esau replied. Keep what you have. But Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor with you, take this gift from me. For indeed, I have seen your face, and it's like seeing the God's face, since you have accepted me. Please take my present. That is that was brought to you because God has been gracious to me and I have everything I need. So Jacob urged him until he accepted. Then Esau said, let's move on and I'll go ahead of you. Jacob replied, my Lord knows the children are weak and I have nursing flocks and herds. If they are driven hard for one day, the whole herd will die. Let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. I'll continue on slowly at a pace suited to the livestock and children until I come to my Lord at Seir. Esau said, let me leave some of my people with you. But he replied, why do that? Please indulge me, my Lord. That day Esau started on his way back to Seir, but Jacob went to Sukkoth. He built a house for himself and shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. After Jacob came from Padam Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tents from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for 400 pieces of silver. And he set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. Now I want you to skip over chapter 34. I'm going to give a little bit of a synopsis of what's going on there and go to chapter 35. And we're going to read verse 1. But in 34, you have a situation that happens where they're in Shechem and the son of Hamar, the chieftain, his son Shechem, sees Leah's daughter, Jacob's daughter, first daughter, Dinah, and he wants her. He wants her so bad, he rapes her. And after he rapes her, he says, I want her as a wife. So they go to Jacob and say, look, yeah, I know my son raped your daughter, but give her, to his, give her as a wife. And they talk, and her full-blooded brothers are upset, Simeon and Levi. So they come up with a plan, and they say, look, you can marry our sister if all the men get circumcised. You can have her. Well, since he was the prince of that region, basically, he decided, okay, he talked to all the men, and all the men got circumcised. And while they were healing, you know, from grown men getting circumcised, not a pleasant experience, you know, no anesthesia, you know, no epidurals. <laughs> Simeon and Levi take a sword, they raid the city, and they kill all the men. Kill everybody. Now, Jacob is upset. Jacob, like, the, the whole region going to come after us. And he like, he said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? And so they, they get ready to pack up, and we pick up in chapter 35. So it's a summary of what happened in 34. Chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel, and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who answered me in the day of my distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. Then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. 
When they set out, a terror from God came over the cities around them, and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to lose, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Verse 7, Jacob built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Deborah, the one who had nursed and raised Rebekah, died and was buried under the oak south of Bethel. So Jacob named it Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You will no longer be named Jacob, but your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. God said, also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, indeed, an assembly of nations will come from you, and kings will descend from you. I will give you the land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, and I will give the land to your future descendants. Then God withdrew from him at the place where he had spoken to him. Jacob set up a marker at that place where he had spoken to him, a stone marker. He poured a drink offering on it and anointed it with oil. Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. They set out from Bethel. When they were still a distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and her labor was difficult. During her difficult labor, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for you have another son. With her last breath before she was dying, she named him Ben-Onai. But his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died. And was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a marker on her grave. It is a marker of Rachel's grave still to this day. Verse 21, Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. And Israel heard about it. Jacob had 12 sons. Leah's sons were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Rachel's sons were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Rachel's slave Bilhah were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah were Leah's slave Zilpah were Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Today's title is New Name, New Identity. Say New Name, New Identity. Now, we just read a lot in this passage that we read today, these chapters that we went through today, are closing out Jacob's story. It ends with Jacob and Esau together again, and they bury Isaac. Now, this, Jacob is not hurt. You know, it's not that he's done in the fullness of the story in Genesis, but him as the key figure, we've come into a close of his story, and we're seeing God's plan unfolding through the life of Jacob and how God is securing his covenant promises that go all the way back to Abraham. But there are some interesting things that happen in this story that really speak to us today who are on the other side of the coming of Jesus Christ. And there are a few things that we learned because we started out is at the beginning of chapter 32, now, we, we know the story and stuff, but think about what's going on. If you were reading this for the first time, we don't know what Jacob is about to face. All he knows, the last words of his brother were, when you come back here, when our father dies, I'm going to kill you. But God sends him out and tells him to go back home. He receives instruction by God. That's number one. I want, don't, 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 don't forget. 
Hold on to that part of the story. He received instruction by God to go back and return. And when he starts to go back, the text says he was met by God's angels. Isn't that a comforting part of the story? God told you to go. You're receiving comfort. That sounds all good. But then the very next news is your brother coming for you and he got 400 men. A lot of times in life, we get on fire for God's word. You know, we might have come to church. Somebody might have prayed for us. Somebody might have spoken something over us. We have this experience with God and we get excited and we get comforted and we like, I'm going to do exactly what God do. And the very next set of news can be scary. We can be excited at one point and then the very next moment, the very next day, we, one message can throw that all into question. But Jacob does something that I think we need to all I'm pausing because I want us to really grasp what Jacob does as his response. As we see, Jacob had a, has a checkered past. And he's been learning on the way through his faith journey. And when he's met with this news, the first thing he doesn't do is plot. See, remember, Jacob used to plot. He used to plot and plan. He gets this news about his brother coming for him. And the first thing he does, he goes to God in prayer, y'all. He goes to God in prayer. And I want you to notice what his prayer was about. When you look at, at Jacob's prayer, it starts and it ends with God. It starts with God and it ends with God. It's all about God. He prays and he starts out with who God is and God's promises. Then he acknowledges how he is unworthy of God's promises. I'm pointing this out because what Jacob did right off the bat was he got humble. Now, I'm pointing this humility out because it's very easy in our humanity when we're walking in these promises of God, it could have been very easy for Jacob to get prideful and be like, who Esau think he's running up against? I just met God angels. I got God's promises. Esau ain't got nothing on me. He could have been prideful, but yet his response was humility. God, I don't deserve these promises, but you've promised them. I'm leaning on you. I'm trusting you. God, you said you were going to make my seed like the sand of the seashore. Lord, I'm looking to you. And then he got up and he says, and, and to further humble himself, because he owed Esau nothing, he put a gift together for Esau. Now, we sat here and we're, we're not agricultural people. We're not farmers. I'm looking around. I don't know if I have any farmers up in here. I got some people that's had some, some animals, but now they don't. Um, but you know, when you go through and count, like, he had a pretty significant gift for Esau. Y'all know that? He had a pretty significant gift. Um, the gift, it consisted of 550 animals, 490 of them were female. Now, the reason that's significant is uh, if you got a bunch of cows and got one bull, you can make a whole lot of cows. If you got a whole bunch of bulls and not many cows, uh, you ain't going to have a lot of cows. What's significant is he supplied. They, think about how much, how balling Israel is at this point, how balling Jacob is. He left with nothing. God told him, I am going to bless you. I'm going to blow your mind. Trust me. And we've been seeing his journey of faith and learning to trust God. And now he's in a position where he's just handing off 500 and some animals. Here, take this. 
It's a gift. He's humbling himself. He goes up to him and he bows seven times. Why? It's an act. He's humbling himself and saying, look, I'm trusting God. And he's not there to defend himself or fight for himself or even defend his past actions. And we're doing so with seeking God first and humbling himself. He experiences God in a way that he can never imagine. Because what he thought he would face as a foe, Esau runs up and hugs him and kisses him. Esau done brushed it off. Matter of fact, Esau, like, I don't even want your gift, man. I got more than I need. I got more than enough. I love this part of the story because Esau and Jacob, once we see God heals broken relationships. But Jacob had an amazing experience because he experienced God going before him, taking care of things on his behalf, and Jacob didn't have to fight for it. Jacob didn't have to earn or deserve it. And that's good news. I remember once I experienced something like that. I had a situation with the supervisor and I was upset. And I've kind of I've shared something like this before. And I said, I'm going to pray. I'm going to step back. And I had every right to walk into that office and state my case. And I prayed for two days. And do y'all know my supervisor came down, came into my office and apologized and rectified everything. And I said, look at God. What if I had gone in there in, in some attitude? It made things worse. What if I had gone in there trying to stand my ground and, and, and his response was to stand his ground and it would have been all kind of distress. But yet, I experienced God go before me. That was brought up to mind because Jacob experienced God go before him. But right before he experiences that, remember, he got this deeper confirmation, this reaffirmation of God's promises because in that night, we have this WrestleMania. Now, I love the description in here and some of, um, you know, how much of an enigma this passage is in trying to understand, like, what is going on here? Because we get this story that it's late at night. Jacob gets by himself. God has already affirmed the covenant, you know, chapters before. But then it says that this man came up and wrestled with Jacob all night. It says until daybreak. That means it was dark and they wrestled until the daybreak came. He was wrestling with him all night. And it says that when Jacob wouldn't let go, when he seen he couldn't get him off of him, he touched him in the hip socket and he, and he crippled him. But Jacob still wouldn't let go. And he says, I'm not letting go till you bless me. And it says he blessed him. And he says, what's your name? Jacob. Remember, we looked at what Jacob's name. Some, sometimes it's got to look confused because his name became associated with deceiving. But his name just literally means hand on heel. That's why when Esau says, he's he, he, Jacob. He's he, he been at me this whole time. He, he grabbed my heel and they didn't stole my blessing. You know, hand on heel. He says, you're not going to be known by that anymore. Your name not going to be associated with deception anymore. Your name is going to be Israel. Now, when he says, your name is Israel, I start doing a study in this, and I, I remember a lot of times we, it's kind of gotten so watered down. We've become so used to that name. You know, it's so associated with that nation, with, 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 with those people, uh, with, 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 with the nation of Israel, that we kind of forget, like, what that really means. He says, your name will be Israel because you have struggled with God and men and prevailed. 
You know, it, it comes from one, it ends, it's theophoric, it, it ends with L, it ends with God. But when you have names like that, actually God is the subject. So it's not to be understood that he sh- struggles or strives with God. It's actually by God. It's really God is putting his name on him. And really it's saying God rules, God will rule, God strives, let God strive, let God rule. God strives, God persists. It carries all those connotations. He put his name on him and says, Esau, I mean, Jacob, you've been struggling, you've been fighting. I'm putting my name on you, and it's about me fighting for you. And the nation that comes from you, I want them to know that they are a nation who God fights for them. God fights on their behalf. Jacob experiences this because right after that is when he meets his brother who had vowed to kill him and he experiences God's hand in his life. And God had already gone before him and fought that battle in the heart of Esau. So instead of being met with a sword, he was met with a hug and a kiss. And I'm encouraging you to understand what it means that God fights for you. God persists. God rules for you and on your behalf that he will fight your battles. Let him fight your battles and you quit fighting them. Because you don't know what, we, we limited, but he's not. Earlier when I was saying about how God, how big God is, and I was saying no, not nothing, which is correct grammar if you really think about it. We talked about that this morning, you know, because it's three negatives, meaning it's a positive, right? Uh, so, uh, but <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the grammar Nazi, so it's just funny to me. Um, but God goes before him, fights his battle, and he experiences that. And that's something that, for me, just jumps off the page and understanding God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. Because earlier when we talked about this, and we've talked about this on and on, if Jacob and his family gets wiped out by Esau, what happens to the promises? What happens to the covenant? Because it was given to Jacob and his seed. We see God being faithful to every single promise that he has given. Every last one of them. And Jacob experiences this. And he got a new name and he got a new, new walk. You know, you know I, I, I like to think of Jacob, you know, because you know, sometimes you think of you know, him as a cripple or something. But I'm like, he probably had that, you know, that, that limp that was. <laughs> now nah, I'm joking. I don't know what he's walking like. But people debate whether it was, it was permanent or or was it temporary? We don't know. What we do know is he had an encounter with God, and there was a evidence of that encounter, and it was remembered. God gave a marker. God gave evidence. God wanted to show. And and and, and reason I say is God, because it, it describes him as this man. We've seen this already in Genesis, haven't we? How God has manifested his presence. We saw this, uh, one, we see this in Genesis 3. He's walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and they hear him walking. So we, we got some feet hitting the ground, and it says, it's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. We see in Genesis 18, the Lord shows up with two angels, Jehovah, Yahweh, and he visits Abraham. It says it was three men, and one of them is the Lord, and they sit there, and they eat bread, and they chop it up. And then we see again God manifesting his presence in a way that seems is anthropomorphic. He's manifesting his presence. Now, we on the other side of the Christ event, you know, we, 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 we look at that as theologians and scholars. 
many of us take it, and I'm on the side of, I believe these are what we call Christophanies. These are pre-incarnate um, manifestations of the Son. Now, I, I, I'll give arguments for that, and you look in John 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, the only begotten Son, has revealed him. Um, so you see there's a few other places this happens, but you see this even in Judges, because even when he asked him, what's your name? He said, why you ask me my name? And he don't give him a name. It's the same thing that the angel of the Lord does. And they say it's God in Judges at the birth announcement of Samson. So God continues to reveal himself in different ways, but makes himself known that it is God. How I know it's God. The, the, word, I, 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 the word we just looked at when it says he struck him on the hip and crippled him, it's really just the word he touched him. You know, it just he just touched him on the hip all of a sudden. It's like, you know, you 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 a bad martial artist. You just touch somebody on something and it just cripple them, right? Yeah. You know, made me think that's better than Pame. Some of y'all may know who that is, but you know, that's 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 some that's a that's a that's a that's a move. But then he blesses him. And notice Jacob's interpretation of the events because he says, I have seen the face of God. I saw God face to face, and he named it Peniel. God goes before him, and he restores a broken relationship. And he had this experience because of this. I want you all to grasp this. Jacob's persistence in holding on to him. See, we may look at that and say, why was he, so, why was he holding on to him, saying, I'm not going to let go till you bless me? What it becomes is a, I don't want to say, say it's a symbol like it didn't happen. The historical event happened. But it speaks to us today that Jacob was now fully only going to rely on God and his strength and his promises and nothing of himself. And he was going to hold on to it and not let go. That encourages me that I'm going to hold on to God's word and I'm not going to let go. I'm encouraging you hold on to God's word, hold on to God's promises and don't let go. He experienced God's graciousness. But then, like, like, like life, you know, life didn't end there because they end up in Shechem and they have all this go down with his daughter Dinah and his sons go down there and slaughter everybody. You know, they take revenge. You know, their sister got defiled and they take revenge. And now, you know, what he's going to do? And he experiences God again. God says, all right, get up, go to Bethel. Notice God's in charge of this whole thing. When he left Laban, God told him, go back home. When he got over there, God told him, okay, now, this is some trouble. I want you to go to Bethel. They go to Bethel. But on the way, I want you to notice, we've been looking at Jacob's progression of faith, right? How he's continued to grow. Remember when they first left Laban? What happened? Laban came out there and he was mad because he said, somebody took my gods. Somebody took my idols. And, and is, is this, this where, see, like, all this is go together. This is one, one story going on. We read it in sections, and we think it's only it's one story. Uh, Rachel stole her dad's idols because that's what they did. They, they worshiped idols. They didn't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and now the God of Jacob. So they, they worshiped idols. They had little statues and whatever, and they, they worshiped those as gods. They believed those gods, those represented their gods. And Rachel stole them and, and hid them from her dad. So her daddy was mad and he couldn't find them. So he let them go. And uh, God actually protected Jacob there. And we see God's unique protection even here. But I want you to notice what Jacob does. This whole time since they left, 
they still had these idols. People in this household. His wives have had these idols. He's meeting with God, speaking with God, with God face to face. But his household is holding on to idols. But now that he's seeing God's faithfulness, he's seeing God come through just like God said he would back in chapter 28 when he says, you come back to this place at Bethel. He already blessed him at Bethel. Already blessed him. Go back in 28. Now he's telling him, go back to Bethel where he had that dream, you know, Jacob's ladder, the stairwell. He saw the angels ascending, descending. God was in that place. He's going back there now, and this is what Jacob does. Through all of this, he goes to his whole household, wives, slaves, servants, everybody that's with him. He says, get rid of all those idols. Get rid of all of them. Purify yourselves. That word he actually uses is strong. That's, 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 a, that's a word that's used in the rest of the Torah for, for a, a kind of a priestly purification, a dedication to the Lord. He says, change your clothes. I love this. It gets me excited. He was like, look, I've seen God answer my prayers. God has been faithful in my distress. Y'all got to get rid of all them gods. If I change your clothes, get washed up, I want y'all to bathe, purify yourself, dedicate yourself wholly to the Lord. Because right now we're going to go to Bethel. That's the house of God. And we're going to go worship him. Recently, I saw something that, that ministered to me. And it, it didn't have to do with this context, but it had these, these words. And it was talking about get your house in order. He said, get your house in order. It was a TV show. And I started thinking about that in my life and in the lives of our people. It's like, are we getting our houses in order or are we still letting idols roam around and hang around? Are we still allowing past stuff to hang around in our houses and we're not, and we're, and we're, and we're, and we're failing to even fully recognize what God is doing in his covenant promises in our lives through Jesus Christ because we're holding on to idols. And you may think, oh, I don't have no statues in my house. You know, I'm not bowing down to something. But, but whatever you serve is your idol. And when I say serve, like, like some, sometimes you may sit there and think, like, I, I don't, I don't have, I'm not singing any other songs to some other God. I'm not singing to Baal. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I'm not singing and, and worshiping Dagon, you know. And you think it's not idolatry, but then the decisions you make on a daily basis will either reflect your service and devotion to the Lord or to something or someone else. And in many cases, our idol is us. In many cases, our idol is my own pleasure and self-worth and what other people think of me. And that dictates everything I do. Or we create a false God. We take pieces of the scripture we like about God and we create our own God and we worship and serve that God, which is no God at all. Because God is the one who has revealed himself fully in all of the scripture and the stuff we like and the stuff we don't like and the stuff we understand and the stuff we don't understand. And yet it's still God. He says, get rid of all your idols. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. We're going to go worship. Now, now, this actually carries some of the background connotation, you know, through church history when folk, you know, get, you know, get dressed a certain way and go to church and all of that. You know, it's, it's really, am I going to go worship? I'm, I'm going to stand before the king. I'm going to go worship the king of kings and Lord of lords, the creator of the heavens and the earth. I'm not bringing anything else in. 
Jacob gets his house in order as they're returning back to Bethel. And the chapter closes out with some information that actually can seem peculiar. Look at verse chapter 35, how it ends. We have Rachel giving birth, and she dies giving birth, and she has her second son, which she, she actually prayed for back, you know, when we looked in uh, you know, the, the funniest, I'll tell you, the funniest section of all the scripture when they were going back and forth. <laughs> you get a chance, go back and read again uh, when they were having all the babies, how they was going back and forth at each other. It was like a competition. Who going to have the most kids? Um, who going to be loved if they had the most kids? But Rachel couldn't, Rachel couldn't have kids. Then she had Joseph, but then didn't have another one. And now in Jacob's old age, she gives birth to Benjamin. Ben Onai, son of my sorrow, because she was dying, but then he named him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Then it closes out saying, giving all 12 son name, and it ultimately closes that chapter with the burial of Isaac. But there's this little peculiar like sentence. Reuben went in and slept with Rachel's slave Bilhah and Israel heard about it. Jacob heard about it. And then nothing else is said. But remember this is part of one story because right when it goes into naming his sons it says Reuben and our Bible said parentheses Jacob's firstborn. Israel's firstborn. Now typically in culture who received the birthright? And the blessing, the firstborn. But that one little sentence now is throwing us for a loop. If you read this for the first time, you're like, why does it make this sentence? Like, okay, uh, uh, Bilhah was one of Jacob's concubines, and she bore him two sons. Reuben, the oldest, went in and slept with her. Daddy heard about it, but it don't say he said anything. And then it lists him as firstborn. What's going on? It's foreshadowing some things to come. Because one of the things that we're still tracing is Genesis 3.15, who is this seed that's coming? Right now, we know that Jacob is part of that seed. And we know that this promised seed is going to come through one of these 12. But we're already getting hinted that it might not be Reuben. I don't know who it's going to be, but it might not be right now. The front runner might be Benjamin because daddy didn't change his name. But we don't quite know who this promised seed is, but we waiting on it. See, we talked about this whole thing of Genesis as God unfolding his master plan because God has created all and it was good. The crown of his creation has rebelled against him. Sin has come into the world. God judged the world even at the flood but said, I'm not going to fully destroy it because I got a plan and it's the seed that's coming and I'm going to unfold this. And it goes from Noah to Shem to Abraham to Isaac, now Jacob. And now we're coming at the end of this story and he got these 12 sons and like who and what's about to happen? But remember the context in which this, which this is written. It's written in the context that they're being called to trust God to go into the promised land that God said I gave you. Go and take it. They're being fearful. The, the, matter of fact, the older generation, uh, before Deuteronomy, they didn't trust God. They had to stay in the wilderness for 40 years until they all died off. God says your kid's going to go in. Now, the kids are reading this, and they're like, I, I think we can trust this God. 
This is a God that's been constantly protecting his promises, constantly making sure even when things look dim, even when it looked bleak, God has been faithful to every promise. Maybe we should trust him and go do what he says we're supposed to do. That same is true for us. See, I said new name and new identity because Jacob was no longer going to be known as Jacob. He was going to be known as Israel. And the nation was going to be known as Israel. God strives. God rules. God persists. But you know, it didn't stop with Israel. See, God put his name on Jacob. But that seed it was pointing to was going to come through. And we're going to look at this story later. It was going to come through one of the other sons. And it was going to be a line that come all the way down to Jesus Christ, born in Bethlehem, just like the promise, like the prophet said he would. And he would fulfill all that was written about him throughout the law, the prophets, and the writings. And when we get to Revelation chapter 3, chapter 14, and in chapter 22, that's just an easy way to say through the whole thing. He says this a few different times. He says that, and he put a new name on them, and he put on his people, he put his name on them. See, a lot of times we read Revelation and we get distracted by talking about the people taking the name of the beast. But all he's doing is copying because it keeps saying that God puts his name on his people. Y'all know by faith in Jesus Christ, just like Israel got his name, God's name on him, you got his name on you. And when his name is on you, that means you have his full protection, you have his full guidance, and you walk in all his covenant promises. Nothing will ever thwart or stop what God is doing. And just like Israel was encouraged to trust God, he's calling us to trust him at his word and that every promise he's given will be fulfilled. When we talk about taking on a name, we talk about nicknames, but... Think about when you get married and you take on a name or even an adoption. When a kid get adopted, they take on the name of the parents. What's, what, it's, it's significant. Because when you take on that name, you're taking on not just that name just be written down, but you're taking on everything that comes along with that. All the provision, all the protection, all of the inheritance. That's something in the name, y'all. Jesus has put his name on each of us. We got a new name and a new identity by faith in Christ. And he's never missed a promise. He has never missed a guarantee. But we trust him with all our hearts. Amen.